The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 5, 21-43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him, earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. For she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Well, at Sacred City, we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. So we are now five chapters deep into the book of Mark. I've been enjoying it. I hope you've, you've been enjoying it as we have kind of, we're on the search to discover the real Jesus. And Mark is one of the best places to go to do that because it's the, one of the earliest accounts to the life and work of Jesus by an eyewitness, uh, the eyewitness testimony. Mark is writing down the eyewitness testimony of Peter. Now, if you've been with us or listening uh, to these sermons online over the past few weeks, you should begin to be noticing that following Jesus is not like a walk in the park. Jesus has led his followers into some of the most Difficult circumstances. The only word I can really think of to describe the situations that Jesus is leading his people into is unsafe. Sorry, moms. Okay? He's leading his people into unsafe environments. Jesus leads his disciples into a devastating storm, into the middle of a hurricane. Let's go that way, Jesus says. Who wants to send their kids on that field trip? Right? 
Then last week, we see he doesn't just send them into the storm to cross this lake, this hurricane, but he's actually, he wasn't taking them, you know, they've, they've had this rough season of ministry, let's take them across the lake for a nice bed and breakfast, get some R&R. Instead, right, where does he take them? Right from the hurricane into an encounter with a man who was notoriously dangerous. A man with a reputation that everyone in town said, stay away from that guy, he's bad news. A man who they said had an unclean spirit, who had been pushed out of society and was living in a graveyard. He was a demon-possessed man. I would consider this a rather unsafe work environment. This is, okay, first hurricane into a man with a demon possession. Following Jesus takes the disciples into the eye of a hurricane and into a direct encounter with supernatural forces that would scare anyone to death. So we are seeing that following Jesus isn't safe. Well, let me say, it doesn't look safe and it doesn't feel safe. I could say that it's this, following Jesus is actually the safest place on the planet because nothing can happen to you outside of the will of God. But following Jesus doesn't work the way we want it to work. It doesn't look safe. It doesn't feel safe. It doesn't make sense. In order to be a fully functioning follower of Jesus Christ, you've got to go through storms. You've got to encounter demonic things. You've got to get into the darkness, the dark areas. You've got to be pressed. Your fear has got to shake you up. Jesus is pushing this. He's pushing his disciples into these situations. But maybe the more shocking thing that we have learned is that Jesus is actually the one who isn't safe. The storm was nothing compared to Jesus' rebuke. Jesus says, peace be still. Whew. Now they're really freaked out. They, they thought they were going to die. The storm was overwhelming. But Jesus, peace be still. And now they say, who is this? That the wind and the waves obey his voice. The legion of demons was nothing compared to Jesus' command to leave the man. He says, get out. And they have to flee. So what might be more concerning for us as followers of Jesus isn't just the circumstances of life that we go through that, that scare us, that cause our fears to rise up, but actually the absolute power and authority that Jesus has. Jesus is showing himself to be quite the enigmatic figure. He's uncontrollable. He's not out of control. He's in complete control. He isn't moved by nature. He isn't moved by the demonic. He isn't moved by religion. He isn't moved by the opinions of people, the accolades of people. This should freak us out. Because we want like, to be able to compliment someone and then kind of get in their good graces, kind of control them just a little bit, control their maybe opinion of us. Jesus is uncontrollable. He's on a whole different level. And today we're going to see another aspect of Jesus that I think is going to challenge our modern Western sensibilities. It's going to cause us to reevaluate our relationship with him. Today we're going to look at the schedule of Jesus, the schedule of Jesus, or the timing of Jesus. And if you are a person who finds themselves frustrated, stressed out, anxious about something going on in your life, if you find yourself asking or wondering, how long, Lord? 
Like, how long am I going to have to go through this? How long do I have to put up with this? How long will you let this keep going on? Why won't you help me? Why won't you move? Why won't you do something? If that's you, and I'm going to say, it's me, <laughs> this sermon's for you. I write, See, this is the, you guys don't know this, but um, I get more out of the sermons than you guys ever will, okay? I get more out of the sermons than you guys ever will. Half of what, half of what I feel like the good stuff, half of it just stays right here because I only got a, l- a little bit of time to preach it to you guys. So the best, I think I have the best job in the world because when I'm going through difficulties and I'm going through struggles, I get to spend 20, 24 hours a week studying the Word of God to deliver it to you guys. So this work has um, done some matrix kung fu on my soul this week, okay? So I hope it, I hope it does some of that on you as well. Now let's, we're going to jump into our text, okay? It's our introduction. We're going to jump into our text Hopefully you're interested. Hopefully you're going to pay attention because I do think this is for you. We're going to we find ourselves in chapter 5, verse 21. And we're going to go line by line, verse by verse, through this book. Okay, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side. Okay, guys, we get this. This is one or two days trip, right? He He's preaching, he's teaching, an exhausting day. He goes across the lake. That's when the storm comes up. He lands on the other side. That's when the demonic dude pops up and all the chaos that happens there. And now he's headed back across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. What happens when he lands to the other side? Surprise, surprise. A great crowd gathered about him. And he was behind, beside the sea. Jesus heads back across the lake and nothing has changed. As soon as he gets on shore, a great crowd, it's a huge mass of people, surrounds him. Jesus was the hottest thing in town. He was an enigma. People couldn't understand him, and they wanted to check him out. They wanted to see all the stuff that he was doing and how he was preaching, and his preaching was so different from everyone else. People wanted him to see. They kind of wanted to clap. Do, do the next thing, Jesus. Do the next miracle. It's kind of the sideshow. You know, there wasn't reality television back then, right? Or you could, I don't even want to get into that. Let me not get into that. Back up. Jesus was the hottest thing in town. Here we go. Verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. Now, here we have something new. For the first time in the Gospel of Mark, we have a religious leader coming to Jesus needing something. Up until this point, everyone associated with the religious establishment, the Pharisees and the scribes, have been out to trap Jesus, to shut him up, and to kill him. But here we have something new. One of the leaders of the synagogue, Jairus is his name. Now that's an important detail. Anyone doubting the validity of Peter's account about what is about to happen could just go up and ask Jairus. Okay, This guy's been immortalized in the pages of Scripture. It's all kind of little details like this that sprinkled throughout the book of Mark that confirm to us that this is indeed an eyewitness account. Because if you're wanting to, if you wanted to write something that's a myth or you're going to write something that the masses will accept, you're not going to sprinkle in little little details like this that can actually, people can actually fact, fact check and go see if it's really true or not. Now, what is a ruler of the synagogue? This is important for us. Scholars say this was a position of great esteem. Jairus would have been a wealthy man with very high morals. 
He would have had a great love for God's word. This is like the president of the PTA or something, right? Jairus was the lay president in charge of the synagogue. He would have been a man who could get things done. We like men like that. A man with a plan. A man with a plan and the leadership acumen to bring that plan to completion, okay? But when Jairus sees Jesus, he falls down at his feet. Now, in our day and age, I want you to picture an executive in his suit and tie. A successful man who just stepped outside of his expensive sports car. He's put together. His hair is immaculate, right? He's got a $1,000, $2,000 suit on. A guy that people look to and go, dang, that guy's got it. That guy is successful. That guy has it all together. But what we quickly learn is that this man doesn't have it all together. Keep reading. uh, 23. And so he falls down at his feet and he implores him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. Do you see what's happening? Jairus has a daughter at home who's at the point of death. Now, anyone who has children knows it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how successful you've been in your career. If your child is about to die, nothing else matters. This man has recognized that he is actually, even though he doesn't look like he's in great need, he's actually a man in desperate need. He looks successful, but his world is about to collapse because his daughter is at home about to die. So seeing Jesus and Jairus, the successful man, throws himself down at his feet. That's humiliating. That's humbling, right? Many of us, uh, maybe you've, you've been successful in your field, you feel awkward when somebody like just raises their hand next to you, right? Just, oh, pressure, 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 right? You feel this pressure of like either to do it or to like, what, this is so weird. Don't know what to do with my hands. And this guy very successful, very put together, when he he recognized that he has a great need and he throws himself at the feet of Jesus. But there's something else. So so he recognizes his need and he recognizes Jesus' ability to meet that need. But there's something else here as well. Think about this. All of Jairus' colleagues are out for Jesus' blood. All of his peers, they want him dead. All of his peers, all of his co-workers, all the religious establishment, his buddies, his small group, his church, all of them want, they all say Jesus, they don't deny he's got power, they say he's evil, they say he's bad, they say he, he's healing people through the power of the devil. So there's this Im- Im- immense amount of social pressure on Jairus to conform, because His people have already deemed that Jesus is a bad guy, that Jesus needs to be dismissed and killed. So when Jairus' daughter gets sick, Jairus is brought into a faith crisis. This is what the sovereignty of God does. When God's moving pieces across the, the, the chessboard of our life, this is why he does things like this. He brings Jairus into a faith crisis where his buddies can't do anything about his daughter that's sick. 
The religious establishment can't help. All they can do is provide a funeral for her. But Jesus, the one who's been pushed to the outside, the one who's already been judged and has been found wanting in their opinion, who's been, this is an evil man, Jesus has the power to heal. So what's Jairus going to do? Is he going to risk his reputation? Is he going to risk his career? Is he willing to lay those things down at the feet of Jesus? Well, here we see right away, absolutely, yes, he is. He throws himself at the feet of Jesus, and he begs for mercy, and he begs for grace, and he says, come with me. If you lay your hands on my daughter, I know she'll live. This is his faith crisis. Now look at verse 24. And he went with him. So Jesus, he's busy. There's a huge crowd. But Jesus sees this one man, hears his need, and says, yeah, man, I'll go with you. And Jesus, now we kind of go, oh, that's nice. Jesus is on the way to heal the daughter of a person who will eventually crucify him. The religious establishment who's out for his blood, who've called him every name in the book, and they're planning and plotting with the Herodians on how to kill and crucify him. One of their leaders comes up and says, I have a need, my daughter. And Jesus is, this is the depth of compassion. I know what I would have said. <laughs> That's bad. I guess you'd need a savior, right? Maybe the Messiah could help out with that. I'm just possessed by the devil. That's probably how I'd respond, real Christ-like. Jesus has great compassion on this one man. Now, this is good news, right? The healer is on the way. The great physician is making a house call. Jesus is following this man. Things are looking up. But let's see what happens. Verse 25. And the, oh, I'm sorry, verse 24. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and, look, thronged about him. Okay? Now, thronged, what does that mean? This means, okay, picture the crowded halls of a junior high. And Justin Bieber walks down the hallway. Okay? <laughs> this is what it means to be thronged. Okay? Ah, right? People throwing themselves on him. Pulling him, right? Yanking him, whatever, right? That's what it means to be thronged. So there's this huge mass of humanity. And listen, once again, we see in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is not impressed by the crowd. The crowd is actually a hindrance to the people who really need something from Jesus, who really want to touch Jesus by faith. The crowd is actually in the way. Everybody's pulling on him. He's got a mission. I have to go from here to Jairus' house, and the crowd is blocking my way, and they're thronging about me, and they're pulling me this way and that. Do you see this? This great mass of people. Do it again, Jesus. Do it again. Do, heal me. Help me. Do a trick. Let me see what you can do for me. The mass of humanity pressing in on him. Verse 25. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. So she's bleeding. This woman has been bleeding from her womb for 12 years. She's in the crowd, right? Think of the Bieber crowd, right? Tossed. 
there's this one woman in the crowd who's got this issue. She's got a physical malady. She has a, a problem. She has something that's been ongoing. It's a chronic problem. It's happening all the time for 12 years. Now let's keep reading. Who had suffered much under many physicians. She's, a, she's suffered for 12 years. She has spent all that she had, so she's financially bankrupt. And she was no better, but rather grew worse. Think about this woman. She has a physical sickness that's chronic. She's in pain. She would have been deemed unclean. She would not be marriage material because she's an unclean woman, ritually, ceremonially unclean. She has went from doctor to doctor to doctor. She's tried every experimental drug on the market. She's used up all of her resources. She's tapped all of her friends, all of her neighbors, all of her family members. She's without hope. There's no more hope for her. She's financially broke, and she comes to the end of everything she knows to do, everything she's tried to get rid of this sickness, all of the medical professionals that that this society has to offer. She's come to the end of that, and she's still getting worse, it says. Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus. Stop. This is, this is, can you imagine this situation? You don't know what to do. You've tried everything and you hear there's this guy named Jesus and he's in town. He's just, you remember that crazy dude across the lake that would cut himself and everybody was ostracized from society? He fixed that dude. Nobody else could fix him, but he fixed that dude. There's also rumors that creation listens to his voice. There's also rumors that he heals demon-possessed people and that he heals sick people and that even one of his followers, mother-in-law, had a cold and Jesus said, oh, you're fine, and he, she, he healed this cold. So she hears the rumors, she hears the reports, and in her mind, she says this, verse 27. She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said... If I touch even his garment, so if I just touch his clothes, I will be made well. Now, this sounds like a 12-year-old girl talking about Justin Bieber, right? It does. If I just touch his, he sweat on me, right? Like this thing, right? This, this, what's going on here? This woman is superstitious, She says, if I just get to Jesus and if I could just touch his clothes, I'm going to be made well. Now, two things are going on here. First, she's superstitious. She thinks Jesus is like a magic rock or something. If I touch him, then I'm going to be made well. There's a lot of superstitions out there like that. If you touch it, you get fixed. So what's her plan? My plan is I'm going to wiggle my way through this crowd. I'm going to touch him and I'm going to run. 
I'm going to grab him and I'm going to dash. Because I know I'm unclean. I know I'm unfit. I know my sickness and my malady has, if I touch him, it would deem him unclean. It would make him ritually, ritually unclean, ceremonial unclean. He would, be, he would not be fit for further ministry. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to steal something from him. I'm going to steal a blessing from him. It's like a little magic rock or rubbing a genie's lamp. I'm going to touch it and I'm going to run. But ironically, so that's first off, she's, she's superstitious. And there's many of us like that. There's many of us out there that we will try any faith that works for us. Well, Eastern meditation, Buddhism, Hinduism, will these things make me calmer? Will they help me in my career? Will they help me in my parenting? If it works, I'll try it. Oh, here's a book to read. Some New Age mysticism. Oh, if it works, I'll try it. If it help me out, hey, that's good. This is how she's approaching Jesus. Another guru, another healer, another magician. She's going to touch him and run. But there's also something else working here. Ironically, this is also the language of faith. This woman sees her great need that no one, not even the best doctors can meet, and she's taking a risk on Jesus. She's sliding her chips across the table and putting all of her money, or lack thereof now, on Jesus. So this is faith, but it's kind of like faith plus superstition. But look what happens in verse 29. And immediately, this is Paul's favorite word, or this is Mark's favorite word here, and Peter's favorite word, immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. This is the grace of God. Her, even though she was superstitious and faith plus superstition, she was healed. It worked. Her bent faith or her crooked faith, her faith mixed with superstition, she still got what she came for. This is the grace of Jesus. She was healed of this terrible affliction that had bothered her, this chronic condition that had bothered her for the past 12 years. But here's where we see the life changing grace of Jesus. Jesus won't be treated like a magic rock. He loves us too much to be treated like that. This woman gets, she comes to him for healing, but she gets far more than what she bargained for. He won't let her uh, touch her and run. He won't let her grab and dash. He won't let her walk away thinking that it was a superstitious faith that saved her. Look what happens in verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now, there's a couple things that are crazy here. First off, that word power. Power, is the word um, dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite from. It's an explosive type of power. It's the first time it's used here in Mark. And Jesus... No, this is weird. Think about thronged, Bieber getting thronged, and Jesus feels power leave him. He feels power, dynamite power, leave him, go from him, go to somewhere else, and he turns around, he turns around, and he says, who touched me? And what's, what's interesting to me when I, when I read this, Jesus was not Superman. See, Superman doesn't get tired. 
Superman can stop, you know, whatever, stop a moving bullet and stop a moving train. He can exert all this power, right? Fly around the earth and reverse its direction, take us back in time. And what? He doesn't get done. (laughs) Right? He gets done, boom, he's good. It doesn't sap his strength. But Jesus is not like Superman. He is a man. He's God, but he's also man. In his humanity, this healing takes something from him. And this should also give us a great understanding of what it felt like to be Jesus. This one woman with this need and her faith, she reaches out and she touches him and he heals her and he feels something leave him. He feels weakened. Power goes out of him. So what was it like to heal the legion? What was it like to heal all the other people, all the other masses of people? What was it like? How exhausting was it? See, we don't, have, we don't worship a Superman who was unaffected by the realities of everyday life. And if you've ever been in a counseling session or you're in a missional community and you're trying to shepherd someone and you're trying to disciple someone and you're trying to help them out and they're in a really rough spot, it takes something from you. It's a burden. It's a weight. It's exhausting. You go to bed at night oftentimes thinking about what you could have said and what you could have done and what do they need to hear and how can I help them get it so they experience the goodness and the graciousness of Jesus. It's a weight to do ministry that we're all called into. And it was no less for Jesus. Her gain came from his loss. Her healing came from power leaving him. So Jesus turns to her and he says, who touched my garments? Now, this is funny. See, Jesus won't be treated like a magic rock. The woman wanted her needs met, but Jesus has more to teach her, more to give her. Jesus wants to know that his grace goes deeper than a physical healing of her body. You wanted healing in your body, but I've got more for you. Look at verse 31. And the disciples said to him, you you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? This is funny. Because the disciples are like, Jesus, you're you're dumb. (laughs) Like, that's literally what they're saying right now. Like, who touched you? I love this, like, sarcasm. Like, everyone touched you. What do you mean, who, t- you know? And it, it, this, isn't this the posture of the human, right? We don't go, like, maybe I'm perceiving his question wrong. Like, maybe there's some, what do you mean by that, Jesus? We're like, that was a dumb question, <laughs> right? The Son of God, you, you need a lesson in, right, reality here. Everyone is touching you. Let's see what he says. And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And Jesus looked around to see who had done it. This is where she gets more than she bargained for. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she came in fear and trembling. See, this is how people who've really experienced Jesus for who he is, this is how people approach the real Jesus, in fear and trembling, right? You don't dance into his presence and just, oh, I feel so good about myself. I feel so amazing. I'm so confident in the presence of Jesus. No, a person who's really experienced the true Jesus comes always in fear and trembling, even his own disciples. When they see him do something, whoo, 
they fall. They get freaked out. The fear of God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And they come to him and they said, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and look, fell down before him. I love this right here. And told him the whole truth. Guys, this, Jesus came to preach the gospel and he says this, repent and believe in the good news. This is repentance. Jesus says, who touched me? The crowd is around her. Think about the chaos. She could have just slipped back. I'm out. I got what I came for. I'm out. But she, recognizing he's speaking to her in fear and trembling, she comes to the feet of Jesus. She throws herself down and she tells him the whole truth. What is the whole truth? I stole it. I did what I shouldn't have done. What was it? I I shouldn't have touched you. It was unclean of me to touch you. It was against the rules for me to touch you. I came and I touched you and I took your power. I did it. I received something from you. I'm broken and you healed me. I'm the one. She tells him the whole truth. This is what repentance is. I am that bad. You've met me here. You've healed me. You've forgiven me, but I'm that bad. Jesus looks to her and he says, there's 34, daughter. She just broke the rules. She just made him unclean. She just treated him like a magic rock. I'm going to come to Jesus for what I can get out of it and then I'm going to get out of here. It has nothing. She doesn't fall at his feet right away and say, you're the son of God. You've been sent here on a mission by God to save the world from its sin. I worship you. She came because she needed her little thing, whatever it was. We could put ourselves in this situation. She came because she was financial de- destitute. She needs Jesus to help her out with her money. She came because she had a sick, because her kids were going off or whatever. That, that's not in the story, but that's what we do. She had a need, physical need. She came to get it from Jesus. She got it. She was ready to get out. But Jesus turns to her and he says, she falls at his feet and she says, he says, daughter. A word of acceptance, a word of identity, a word of you are mine. Look what else he says. Daughter, your faith has made you well. And this is a benediction. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He wanted her to know. He wasn't a magic talisman that healed anything that it touches. This woman touches Jesus in faith. Her faith in Jesus is what made this touch a power exchange. Her faith tapped the power of Jesus and Jesus wanted her to know that so she could have more than just a healing. She could have a new relationship with the God of the universe. This woman's faith was mixed with superstition, but it wasn't the, hear me, it wasn't the quality of her faith. It's Jesus, the object of her faith, that got the results and turned this suffering woman into a daughter of the king. Now, this is what I could just, I want to just hammer this point home and just preach this and just say dismissed. But this 
story isn't even the point of the story. So let's not forget the rest of the story. This event, as miraculous as it was, has taken time, right? Do we remember what was going on? Jesus was on the way to heal another sick girl when he was interrupted by this crowd and this suffering woman. This suffering woman was an obstacle to the mission that he was on to go and heal Jairus' daughter. Can you imagine right now how Jairus is feeling? How do successful, highly organized people feel when things don't go the way they plan for them to? Right? Jairus is stuck in traffic while his daughter is dying at home. The physician's with him. Every second counts here, right? Can you imagine what's going on in his heart? Can you imagine what's going on in his mind? His daughter's dying at home and this crowd is thronging Jesus and this woman's touching him and Jesus changes directions and turns around. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Come on, Jesus. Stick with the program here. Let's stay focused. Let's stay focused. Jesus, my daughter, that's what we're going for. You said we could do it. We're on this way. Come on. Hop on a donkey or something. Let's make it happen. Come on, Jesus. We're being distracted. We're wasting time here. All this to say, you know that Jairus had a plan and a schedule. Right? One of the worst things sometimes when I first stepped into ministry, the first guy he, he, that tried to disciple me, he, he wasn't much of a discipler, honestly. Um, all he taught me back in the day, okay, this is probably 15 years ago now, and he said, he sent me, my first meeting, he sets me down, and he gives me a Franklin Covey planner. Do you guys remember these? If you were around for a while. A Franklin Covey planner. And he just spilled the gospel of control. That's what he did. All right, every second counts. Every minute counts. My schedule is, I got 15 minutes appointments all day long. And he just said, just spit, preach the gospel of here's your plan, here's your schedule, here's how you're in control of things. And now, obviously, I've upgraded, right? I don't need a Franklin Covey planner. I have a digital woman who tells me all these things, right? <laughs> Here's when it's supposed to happen. Here's what you've got to do. Make your plan. Stick to it. This is, what hap- this is how you get successful. And this crowd, Jairus, you know Jairus is no different. He's the ruler of the synagogue. You don't get there by waking up at 1130, Right? Let me see. We need somebody to run, the, to run the synagogue. Who should we find? Well, Jairus is still living at home with his mom, and he loves to play video games. He wakes up about noon every day. Um, he might be a good fit, right? That's not what you do, right? You look for somebody who's put together, who knows how to get things done, who knows how to make a plan and execute a plan, somebody who knows the importance of a schedule. So you know Jairus has a schedule, he has a plan, and this crowd and this suffering woman are an obstacle to his plan. I've said it several times in this series in Mark how much unlike us, Jesus is like us in a lot of ways, but how much unlike us he is also. How much he goes against our natural dispositions and our natural inclinations. Now, this is no exception. 
For Jesus, this obstacle, this traffic jam, this suffering woman needing help, and please hear me this morning, this is the plan. This is the schedule. The timing of Jesus is not ruled by Western efficiency. It's set to the Father's will. We are so arrogant in our culture, in our Western civilization, to believe that Jesus and God must work on our Western idea of time. And it's funny because this is a cultural creation of ours, right? You're probably upset if somebody's not on time to your meeting, okay? Now, other cultures, that doesn't bother them, right? When I preach in Kenya... It doesn't bother, first off, it doesn't bother them really what time I start. They're going to keep showing up and keep showing up, keep showing up. And it does, they're definitely not, okay, you got one hour, preacher, right? And then I'm out. They want, they sit there for three hours, right? They don't have anything to do. They're not on this idea of time that we've bought into in our society. And this shows us something here really important about following Jesus, Listen, please hear me this. If you expect Jesus to do things in your way, on your schedule, you will always find it difficult to trust him and feel loved by him. If you expect Jesus to do things in your way and on your schedule, you will always find it difficult to trust him and feel loved by him because you're trying to conform him into your Western idea of timing and scheduling. If you loved me, you would do things the way I want them done, and you will struggle to feel loved by him. What happens to you when things aren't going the way you've planned them to go? When things aren't happening in your timing, the business isn't growing as fast as you want it to, Do you get stressed out? Does your anxiety make it hard to pray? Make it hard to serve? Make it hard to love God? Trust God? Listen, if that's you, hear me this morning, that is a gospel issue. You are expecting Jesus to operate on your sense of time and you will never experience the deep soul rest that Jesus offers you until you give up your control of the clock to Jesus or the schedule, whatever, clock, schedule. You can't, listen, you can't figure out Jesus. Look at these two women that come to him. One has been suffering for 12 years. So in one sense, this woman has cried out to God a thousand times, why haven't you showed up? Why haven't you healed me? Why haven't you helped me? This woman has been suffering a chronic condition for 12 years. And this other girl, this is an acute condition, right? This is a a condition that needs Jesus' help right now. She's dying right now. So in one sense, Jairus, if he's thinking like me, if he's thinking like a Western man, I would be looking at this and going, ho, 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 Jesus, she's been suffering for 12 years. I know that's rough, okay? I know. I'll give her that, but this isn't life or death. What's another 20 minutes? What's another hour? Here's priority number one, Jesus. My daughter's about to die. Come back and get this, this girl later. 
Not saying forget about her, but this makes more sense. Priority one, acute condition. Priority two, chronic condition. If an ER, if something bad happens, you've ever watched the TV shows, something bad happens, tra- um, traumatic event, train crashes, the doctors run around, and what do they do? They're tagging the patients. This one's a priority. This one's not a priority. This one, why? On basis of their condition. Who needs the immediate help? This child needs immediate help. But Jesus doesn't go along with this, our understanding of timing. Look at verse 35 and see what happens. So this interruption here, while he was still speaking, so this interruption, right? We're on the way to Jairus' house. His daughter's about to die, acute condition. This woman with this chronic condition comes up. He says, daughter. He takes the time. He turns around. He didn't have to. He could have zapped her, healed her, been gone. He turns around. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your sickness, your disease. And this encounter takes time. And at the same moment, while he was still speaking, verse 35, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Jairus' greatest fear has just been realized. For me, this solidifies everything I already knew. I knew it! This distraction, this crowd, we should have took this way, we should have went this, we should have went faster, put our head down, forget about everybody else, forget about everybody else's needs, and we should have went directly to my house. I knew this was going to happen. My daughter is dead. The fear of a father, the fear of a mother, the, the greatest fear has been realized in this man. Can you imagine this father's pain? His anger, his frustration. The crowd, the woman, they blocked Jesus. They caused her death. (laughs) But to Jesus, this is the plan. This is the schedule. This is the timing. Look at verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, he says to Jairus, Jairus, and you should highlight this in your Bible, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. Jesus' plan hasn't changed one iota. He looks at Jairus and he has the audacity to say, don't be afraid, trust me. Do not fear, Believe. Once again, we've been seeing this for the past three weeks. Faith and fear are connected. Faith and fear operate on the same level, the same frequency, the same wavelength. Faith in Jesus, hear me, is meant to move down so deep into our hearts that it changes the deepest part of who we are, the part where fear grips us. See, so many of us, our faith is here. And our fear is here. Our faith is in our head and our fear is in our heart. And faith in your head 
can't overwhelm or overrule fear in your heart. Faith must be worked down to the bottom, the core of who we are, the same level where fear grips us and fear controls us. Faith must be worked down that deep in us. Think about this. What do you fear? What do we fear? What do we fear? I think we fear weather. We just heard another guy yesterday. We we saw what happened in, if you saw the news, what happened in Nepal, earthquake, killed, I think, over 2,000 people so far. Some of our, even hikers up on uh, Everest were killed yesterday. We fear weather, tornadoes, earthquakes, hurricanes. We call these acts of God. We're afraid of these things. Jesus takes his disciples through it. He says, don't fear. What else do we fear? Evil, demonic, ISIS, terrorism. Jesus leads them right into the enemy's territory and he shows them that even in this chaotic environment, he's still in absolute sovereign, complete control, makes a laughing stock of the man, really, casts out demons, sends them into a pig, throws them off a cliff. He is in absolute sovereign power. What else are we afraid of? Sickness, cancer, lupus, issues that our doctors don't have a cure for. Jesus heals this woman as she is brought to the end of her plans and he puts her crooked faith, she puts her crooked faith in him and he deals with it. He heals her. What else do we fear? What else causes fear to rise up inside of us? What keeps us up at night? The thought that everything bad is going to happen? That the minute you let your guard down, it's all going to fall apart? Your little sandcastle has been built and you're guarding it and trying to keep the wind and the waves and everybody away from it? And you're, you're worried that if you stop worrying, if you stop tinkering, if you stop putting all your pressure and all your mental energy into this thing, that it's all going to collapse and be washed away? We're afraid to give up control of our schedules. We're afraid to take a Sabbath and actually rest. We don't think God will take care of us. What are we afraid of? Going bankrupt? Growing old and not having a retirement account and actually needing somebody to take care of us like our children? Are we afraid of that? This woman, she was bankrupt. Jesus meets her in her deepest need. See, Jesus is teaching us something, church. He's teaching us that he will answer our fears. He will speak to our fears. But there is something for us to do. We must believe. We stress out. We try to make everything happen in our timetable, according to our schedule. This is exactly where Jairus is at. This is his faith crisis. He'd already thrown himself at Jesus' feet. Think about this. He's already thrown himself at Jesus' feet. Jesus was already moving towards his greatest need. But Jesus took too long. An interruption. An interruption, an obstacle caused Jesus to get distracted. And here we are with the worst news this guy has ever heard. His daughter is dead. The very thing he most feared has now just become a reality. Jairus, your daughter, whom you loved, is dead. And Jesus has the audacity to speak directly to him, and he issues a command. 
He said, he doesn't feel sorry for him. Just like the woman with the issue of blood, Jairus is about to get more than he bargained for. Jairus came for a healing. He's about to get more than he ever imagined. Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. In that statement is the gospel in a nutshell. Trust Jesus instead of your fears. Have more faith in Jesus than you do in your fears. What is your fears? Your fears are everything bad that you think could happen is actually going to happen to you. Everything bad is going to become true. Trust Jesus, that God is great, that Jesus is great, so I can loosen my death grip on my life, and I can loosen my death grip on my schedule, and on my bank account, and on all, all, everything that I try to control, because God is in control, and I can trust him. Verse 37, let's read through this quickly. Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John. So Jesus brings his fight club, okay, his little intimate discipleship group. They're the only ones that can go with him. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now, this is funny. That's not really funny. In the Jewish culture, when someone died, they hired professional wailers. If you've ever seen it on the news, people, they would just holler. They would just wail. They were meant to make this environment uh, mourn, mournful, sad, kind of very emotional. And the more wealthy you were, the more wailers. If you were poor, you were required, I think, I, I can't remember off the top of my head what the scholar said. I think it was two wailers and, and, a, and a flute player if you were poor. That's what you had to have. But if you were rich, you probably had several instrument players, and who knows how many wailers. So you have these professional wailers hollering at the top of the lung, mourning in this room, and Jesus walks into it, and he hears this huge commotion. And look what happens. Verse 39. And when he had entered, he said to them, "Um, why are you making such a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Now that just shows you, these weren't people really mourning. She's not asleep. She's not dead. She's asleep. (laughs) Dead girl right here. She's laughing at a wake, right? She's laughing at a, they're laughing at a funeral. They were paid professionals to put on the show that they're mourning. And not only that, they knew a dead body when they saw it. This is what they did for a living. They were in the presence of a dead body for a living and they wailed for a living. So they knew she was dead. Jesus gets laughed off. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and he went in where the child was and taking her by the hand, he said to her, this is in Aramaic, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Now listen, this is not what he's going to do later to, to Lazarus, and he speaks and he says, Lazarus, come forth. This is not that kind of speaking. Little girl, that's like saying, honey, baby girl, sweetheart. It's a pet name. 
And when he says, arise or get up, he's not, this isn't a command. This is like what you do with your kids in the morning when you wake them up for school. Come on, baby. Come on, get up, baby. Get up. This is Jesus. See, Jairus is about to get far more than he ever bargained for. He wanted a healing. He's about to get a resurrection. And he grabs her hand and he says, honey, get up. She steps out of bed. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. See, Jesus wasn't just a miracle worker. He wasn't a sideshow freak that wanted to grow these massive crowds. He's still telling people not to tell. And he told them to give her something to eat. And that little detail, does that add to the story at all? See, Peter's remembering. Oh, my God. Oh, he, told, he just told her, get up. She got up. And then he said, get her something to eat. Everybody's writing that down like, Get her, he told her to get her something to eat. It's a detail that isn't it, but it just shows the, the, that it really happened and it shows the care and concern of Jesus. <laughs> Death and resurrection might make a man hungry or a girl hungry, right? He, he, he's actually going to find out. This man came to Jesus, Jairus, came to Jesus the fear that his daughter would die, his fear gets realized, but he gets so much more than he bargained for. Instead of seeing him heal, heal his daughter, he gets to see Jesus resurrect her. What is Jesus doing? Let me bring this all home here as I close. In Mark 1.15, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. This is his message. Jesus came to put the kingdom of God on display. He came to crack a window, to pull back the curtains of the kingdom of God and let people look inside. What is the kingdom of God? It's a term that we use a lot, but most people don't know what it means. The kingdom of God is the entire galaxy put right with God at the center. Listen, the entire... Creation groans as in childbirth, waiting for the day that the kingdom of God will be revealed and there'll be no more earthquakes and there'll be no more storms and even the animal planet will be put to right. All of creation's waiting for that. Human beings will finally be restored to God, our creator, and be able to walk with him once again. We'll finally be able to be restored with our fellow humans. All of the whole galaxy being made right. No sickness, no death, no fear, perfect love, all in all. In the Lord of the Rings, at the very end, when the ring has been destroyed and Sam and Frodo, they find out that Gandalf, their leader, is still alive after they witnessed him fall to his death. And at the very end, they find out that he's still alive and Samwise Gamgee makes this wonderful statement. He says... Gandalf is alive? Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? That's a great description of the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, everything sad comes untrue. Now here, 
okay, if Jesus came to crack a window, if Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God, then why do people still get sick? Why do people get sick and why do people not get healed of their sickness and they, and they die? I've prayed for people and they've died. Why does this happen? Here's where things get a little fuzzy. We just need to unpack it a little bit. Jesus opened a window so the kingdom of God breaks into our life in the here and now. But what we need to remember is the kingdom is not here in its fullness, not yet. The bleeding woman, Jairus, Jairus' daughter, all of the apostles, though the kingdom of God broke into their life and changed their life in the moment, they all still died. This woman, this little girl, she died, she was resurrected. She died again. See, the kingdom of God is broken in so we get to see glimpses of what's to come. We get to see glimpses of the new heavens and the new earth that when Jesus comes back and he reigns over all, that's what the world is going to look like. Everything's going to be put right. But all we have now is a glimpse. We have a cracked window that the kingdom sometimes breaks into and, and we get to peek in at. Well, then... Well, then what? Flip to, Rome. Flip to, if you have your Bibles, go to Revelations 20. I don't do this very often, but I'm going to do it today. Revelation 20. Doing all right. Revelations 20, verse 11. What happens when someone experiences the kingdom of God and then they die? What happens on this earth when, after we die, what's to come? Verse 20, chapter 20, verse 11. When you're there, let me, know, let me know by saying there. Okay, here we go. Then I saw a great white throne. This is the Apostle John writing. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, Jesus. Listen to this. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was fa- found for them. This is how, how much glory Jesus had. Earth and sky all of creation bows down and pushes out of the way. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done on this earth. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, John tells us. Think about this. Sickness, bankruptcy, loss of control, even death itself. These are not our greatest problems. These should not be our greatest fears being separated from God and then experience what John calls the second death, 
which is the judgment of God upon anyone who's not been reconciled to God through Jesus, whose name's not written in the Lamb's book of life. That is our greatest need. This is our greatest fear, to be separated from God and goodness for all eternity upon the second death. This is the greatest fear of our life. This is the end result of the curse that's been placed upon all creation because of Adam's sin and because of our sin. There's nothing more dreadful. In all of the Bible, there's nothing more dreadful than that. I read it with tears in my eyes. No second chance. Man dies and then comes the judgment and then comes the second death. That's the ultimate fear. That's the final, the finality of the curse. And listen, that was the curse that Jesus took for us on the cross. Jesus, Scripture says, became a curse for us on the cross. On the cross, Jesus dealt with this, the second death. He dealt with our greatest fear. The fear of being cursed and separated from God for eternity. That's what Jesus was on the cross. He was cursed and separated. He cried out and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he didn't get an answer back. God turned his back on him and crushed him for our sins in our place. Jesus was cursed so that we could be blessed. Jesus was bankrupt so we could be spiritually rich in him. Jesus took the cold shoulder of the Father so we could have his warm embrace. Jesus did that all for you. Think about that. Let me just say this. When we read that text in Revelation, it says they're judged based upon what they did on this, in this earth. They're judged, became, they're judged on their works. Absolutely. At the, at the throne of God, this is what happens. You've got two options. Your record pops up, and the only way into the kingdom of God is straight perfection. If you've ever broken a rule, if you've ever disobeyed God, if you've ever not loved him with your whole heart, then hell is for you. There is no, I'm kind of good, I'm kind of bad, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, let me in. No, that's not the standard of God. That's your standard, that's our standard, that's our cultural standard, that's not the standard of God. But there's, there's, a, there's a different way, there's a second way. The works of another counted for us. And when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness gets counted for us. Don't fear, just believe. Don't fear, just believe. So when I stand before the king of kings, when I stand before Jesus on his white throne, I say, I'm in Christ. I put my faith in you. And his standard, his record pops up. Perfect righteousness. Come on in. Enjoy the kingdom of your father that's been prepared for you from all eternity. Here's the standard. Your record or Jesus' record. This is a life of works. This is a life of faith. Think about that. Think about your greatest fear eternal separation in in the lake of fire, as he says it, your greatest fear, Jesus dealt with. Jesus silenced. Jesus answered. Now let me ask you a question. If he has already dealt with our greatest fear, and he did it at an enormous 
personal cost to himself, why wouldn't you trust him with your lesser fears? Not only did he, do, did he answer our, he dealt with our greatest fear at a normal, enormous personal cost to himself, but he did it in a way that none of us saw it coming. Coming to earth, living our life, dying our death, God being nailed to a tree. That's not on our timing. That's not on our schedule. He didn't come in our way. So why would we expect him to deal with our lesser fears in any other way than on his own, in his own timing and on his own schedule and according to his own plan? If he dealt with your greatest fear, why won't you trust him with your lesser fears? See, there's only one storm that can really sink you. There's only one sickness that leads to the second death. And that's unbelief in Jesus. This is our great problem. Will you fear not and believe in him today? Will you put your faith in Jesus Christ? That's the question. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your grace given to us in Jesus. We live in a world that plays on our fears. We live in a world that magnifies our fears, that uses even fear to market products to us and push us to vote certain ways. Many of us are controlled by our fears. And too many of us have a faith that's cognitive, that's intellectual, that hasn't drilled down to deal with our deepest fears, the fears of being rejected by you, the fears of not being loved by you, the fears of not being good enough, not being successful enough, not being moral enough fear of being an outsider, but help us see Jesus who was all of those things for us. He was pushed out so we could be brought in. He was judged so that we could be blessed. He was cursed and cut off so that we could be embraced. Father, this is the gospel. This is good news. Would you push it deep down in us and help us live out this faith that we say we believe. Help it change us in the deepest core of who we are. And as we come, as the highlight of this service, we come this morning as believers with open hands to receive your body as a means of grace to us. We receive it knowing we don't deserve it, but you have made us worthy. You have broken your body for us and we receive the cup. We receive your blood knowing that it was spilled for us, that it covers all of our sins, that it It's the answer to our greatest fears. Would you satisfy the longings of our soul today? Would you quiet our fears as we think about the cross and the resurrection and the new hope to come? In Jesus Christ's powerful name we pray. Amen.